Hey, y'all. Uh, welcome to REF. My name is Simon Stokes. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you at some point. Um, before we really get going, I want to say that this is the last kind of regular REF of the semester. We don't have REF next week because of Thanksgiving, so no one will be here. Uh, and the week after that, we'll have REF here, but it'll be a lessons in carol service. And so, like, we're singing Christmas songs, reading kind of Christmas Bible passages, things like that. Uh, and I want to say that that is a great, great, great thing to invite people to. Um, a lot of people love Christmas carols. It's a great time to kind of start to get into holiday spirit. And it's a great way to introduce people to RUF, um, to invite people who maybe aren't Christians into something that maybe they grew up culturally doing. Um, we'll have a Christmas party after that as well. Um, not that same night, but afterwards. Uh, in the semester, and that's also a great thing to invite people to. So I just want you to, to say, consider that. Um, also, another thing, uh, if you are here for Thanksgiving um, and you don't have anywhere to go, you're welcome to do Thanksgiving with me and Katie. Um, so you could come to our house and eat turkey with us and our littles, um, Emery and Caroline, and also uh, another couple in our shepherding group where they have little kids. So if you want to take on that kind of craziness... You're welcome to it. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you're, so if you're out here, then please come and uh, do Thanksgiving with us. Or if you are here, then please come and do Thanksgiving with us. Don't do Thanksgiving by yourself. Um, just do it with us. That'd be really great. So we are at the very end of the book of Exodus tonight. And uh, man, I hope this is, you've enjoyed this as much as I've, I've enjoyed this. <laughs> um, but this is uh, the la- very last section of the book. And it's really setting the stage for what everything is to come after in Exodus, but also looking back on everything that's happened before in Exodus. So read with me here, Exodus 40, 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle... The people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out to the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. It was God's word, and it's true, and it's given to us because God loves us. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, thank you for your word tonight. Lord, for the way in which you dwell with us, you abide with us, you love us. God, help us to know that tonight. However we come, um, whether that's very tired, that's very skeptical, that's very committed to who you are, um, meet us from those various places. Dwell with us in those various places. Show us who you are through the person and the work of your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, what I want to suggest to you all tonight as we get started is that you really, to really understand a story you've really got to understand what the end of that story is about. And that hit me not long ago. I, one of my all-time favorite movies is this Wes Anderson movie called The Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, it came out, like, <laughs> I guess 10, 15 years ago. Um, but it's one of my all-time favorite movies. And what it is is it starts off, and it's quirky, it's weird, like lots of Wes Anderson movies. And it's about these three prodigies. One is this incredible playwright, one who's a great tennis player, one who's a kind of business kind of phenom. And their dad is involved in their life at the start of the movie. And it's, again, it's quirky and it's weird. And you watch it and you have no idea where it's going. 
And then pretty soon at the start, he just kind of leaves the family and it just blows up these kids' lives. And the first half of the movie is all about drugs and affairs and death that happens to these kids. And a lot of it due to their dad's abandoning his children. And you're watching like, what is this about? I mean, it's entertaining, but you don't know where it's going. And the second half of the movie, though, is about the dad trying to be reconciled to his kids. And the end of it, you see Chaz, uh, one of his sons, who's played by Ben Stiller, who has hated, hated his dad, Gene Hackman, throughout the movie and just has wanted nothing to do with them. You see that they've reconciled. And Gene Hackman has had a heart attack and they're going to the hospital in the back of an ambulance and Chaz is weeping over his dad, loving him. And then the lights go on and the movie's over. And you realize that you really only understand the start of that movie and the quirkiness and the weirdness of that family and all the, the brokenness of that first half. You only understand that after you understand the end of the movie. That this is a story about a dad trying to be reconciled to his kids. Exodus is really similar to that. That the end of the book of Exodus is about God and his glory dwelling with his people. Which means that looking back, this is what that story is about. That this is the lens through which you see the whole of the work of this book. That God has delivered his people from slavery. He's brought them through the desert. He fed them. He's cared for them. He gave them priests and sacrifices to atone for their sins. And you can read the book and you have no idea where this is going. Why four chapters on the clothes the priest wear? It's because the end of the book shows you what the story is about, which is that God is passionate about dwelling with his people in his love and his glory. What's funny about it is that they never have clarity, control, a sense of consequence when they're in the wilderness. The book ends and they're still in the wilderness in Exodus. But they have God and his love and his glory. And you're there too. That we're a people who live in the wilderness And we stay there. You're never going to leave that on this side of the grave. But this is the place where you get transformed. And this is the place where God meets you and dwells with you. And where we become people who follow God's glory and know God and dwell with Him in love. And this is really the essence of the life of faith. Becoming people who live in and dwell in God's glory. I want to say that I think our problem is that we seek all kinds of lesser glories and lesser loves. But to find true fulfillment in our hearts and real satisfaction for our souls, we've got to become people who dwell with God and His glory and His love now in the wilderness on this side of the grave. So I really just want to ask two questions tonight of this text. I want to ask, what does it mean for us to be people who dwell in God's glory? And what does it mean for us to be people who follow God in His glory? Dwelling and following. That's what I want to look at. So one... What does it mean for us to be people who dwell with God in his glory? I want to say this at the start, that God's dwelling with his people is not like a random thing that he's doing. It's actually a really full feature of his life. Look at verse 34 here. That the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Do you know what the Hebrew word for tent there means? It means tent. That's what he's doing. Like literally, I know tricked you. Uh, <laughs> but this, the tabernacle is just God, the tent that God used when God went camping with his people. 
Like this is God coming alongside of his people and identifying himself with them and saying, if you're in the wilderness, I'm in the wilderness. If you live in a tent, I live in a tent. It's like that Edward Sharp song from a few years ago, like home is wherever I'm with you. Like that's what God is doing here. He's saying that God's glory is meant to be our home and we're meant to be family to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's why God calls his people his children. Look, some of y'all feel really rootless and homeless. Like you're caught in college between your parents' house. Like that when you go home, it's, that's not really home. But then you also are here and you're living in like an 8 by 8 dorm room. And that doesn't feel like home that much. Sometimes it does. A lot of times it doesn't. And to your sense of rootlessness and homelessness, God has said, I'm going to make my home with you. And I'm going to dwell with you. And wherever your home is, that's my home too. He dwells with his people. Look at verse 35 here. Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. That God is committed to filling the empty lives of his people with fullness. It's not that parties and work and Instagram aren't good things. But they're just not full enough for you to satisfy your heart. That you were made to dwell with God in His glory. And that's your original longing, the thing that you've pursued your whole life. And you'll not be full or feel full or feel satisfied until you have it. Dwelling in God's presence here is more than praying on occasion when you're really stressed. That to dwell in God's presence is to orient your life, your thoughts, your goals, your ambitions, your actions, how you spend your money, what you're looking for in a spouse. Like, according to who God is and what He's done. That to dwell in God's presence in this way is to live in the reality that the movement of the story of Scripture has with God and His people. That in the beginning, He walks with them in the garden. And then He lives next to them in a tent. And He dwells beside them in a temple. And He lives with them in the flesh of Jesus. And when Jesus ascends to heaven, He pours out the Holy Spirit on His people... So that he could live with you, inside of you, in the most intimate of ways. And that should really blow your mind. Because we can look at our lives and it can feel really boring and ho-hum. Like, there's nothing exciting about me. I'm just doing class and living my life and going about my business. But to be a Christian means that God actually wants to dwell with you in those things. To live with you in your studying. And you're hanging out with your friends. And when... You're eating dinner by yourself. That God is here to dwell with you and to dignify all of your life with His glory. That just sounds so normal and not very exciting. He's into it. He wants to be with you. It's not exciting. It's super normal. It's like you're this tent, which is just a regular tent, but it's nothing special about it until God dwells in that thing. And dignifies it and fills it with his glory. And then it's amazing and awesome that you and your life are dignified and made glorious by God's presence. That God himself has said, you are on a journey and I want to be a part of that. I want to dwell with you. That God's glory has sought you out. It has freed you from slavery. It's made its home with you by living inside of you through the Holy Spirit. Which is not here just to give you like weird powers or something. But to reveal God's glory in Christ. 
That to dwell with God is to see God's glory in the work of Jesus and to be changed by it. That the glory of the people of Israel is that they got to be with God as he dwelled in a tent. But our glory is to carry God inside of us with the gospel. That God has made himself nothing and humbled himself on a cross and died for sinners so that they would have what he has and he would dwell with them forever. And that is so glorious that angels long to look into it. It's a reality of your life, and it's glorious, and you carry it with you wherever you go. Being a Christian, y'all, is not about just thinking the right stuff, or voting for the right candidate, or being the right sort of activist. We can read the right stuff, do the right stuff, but the real task of being a Christian is to dwell with God through Jesus in intimacy, and to really know God, and be with God. I mean, this is why we do community groups and plug community groups. Those are not groups so we could primarily learn about theology, and they are not groups where we primarily learn how to be really vulnerable and open about our struggles. But we do community groups to learn how to be with Jesus and be with one another in his power and his presence. And yeah, you'll learn some theology in that. And yeah, you'll learn how to be open with people in that. But it's only in the presence and the power of Jesus that we really know who God is. And in His presence and His power that we can deal with our shame and our fear and our sin and safety. That that's why we do community groups. And this just begs the question of do you dwell with Jesus? Do you abide with God and with one another? Do you understand that dwelling with God is the place of transformation and ministry? Paul understood this. In 2 Corinthians 3, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same degree from one degree of glory to another. That God's intention for your life is not that you would get busier and busier and busier and more and more stressed out and feel like you never measure up. God's intention for your life is that you be transformed by dwelling with Him and with His people that you would be changed and made new, like we read about in our call to worship. That Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, he's hanging out with his friends, having a last meal with them, saying the, pouring out his heart to these men and saying the things that really are on his heart. And he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That being with Jesus is the place of transformation and the place of really doing something good in the world. So that's what it means to dwell with God. What does it mean to actually follow God? What does it mean for us to follow God? Look at verses 36 to 37 here. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. Wherever God was going, there they were going to. But if he doesn't set out, then they stay. They are following God wherever he goes. That to dwell with God means to follow God wherever he leads you. And this rhythm of dwelling and following, dwelling and following, that's the rhythm of faith. What do you learn about following him here? What do you learn, just a glance at this, is that God uses his power 
to limit himself and to live in a tent. So he can be with vulnerable, weak, sinful people. And if that's the kind of God we have, then that's what we have to do as well. Look, y'all, it seemed like almost every day for like the last week or two weeks, I don't know how long it's been, that some other man in either entertainment or politics is being found out for preying on young women. Some of y'all may have been victims of that. And if you are, that is not right. That is evil. Some of y'all may be tempted towards that sort of behavior. And if you are, then that's also evil. I invite both kinds of people to come and talk with me about that afterwards. But the light of a holy God dwelling with his people should expose the fact that that sort of power and abuse of power is wicked and evil. And Christians should be the first people to call that out and say something about that. Because this is the kind of God we have who takes his power and dwells with weak, vulnerable people and calls us to follow him in that. That God calls us to holiness. And so if we leave holiness, then we leave God and leave following him. He calls us to justice. And so if we leave justice, then we leave following him in that too. That if you are a Christian, you are called to be like Christ. Which means that you are called to be a friend to sinners and the weak and the vulnerable and the broken. But no friend to sin. That your primary mission in life is to dwell with him and become like him. However that looks, that you have to press towards God's purposes in the world. That we don't just set up shop in a tent and stay there and not move out. But we press towards God's redemption and follow him where he goes. That this is what you were made for. To press the glory of God out in the world in every single aspect of who you are. To be part of fashioning the world and fashioning your life. To be a shelter for all kinds of people and all kinds of creation under God's glory. With God's people. Think about it like this. Throughout the book of Exodus, God reveals himself as a person who's determined to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes, to redeem his people from sin and death and be with him. And if God is redeeming all things and not just individuals, if the gospel impacts all of life, not just you inside of here, then God's purposes go out into all the world. That this is the kind of God we have. And we have to follow him out into the world to love and serve and carry his glory. I, had, I heard a uh, story recently of a, from a friend of mine who's a pastor. And he was talking about that he had a friend who was an atheist. And they were having a pretty just honest dialogue about that. And his atheist friend said that, you know, religion is just this act of escapism where you're trying to get out of the world and leave it. And, you know, you can't handle how hard things are. And this pastor says, you know, when you try to get out of a burning building, that's not escapism. That's intelligence. And that's true, but that's not the whole story. Because Christians are called to run back into the building and grab people and do what they can to put out the flames. Because that's the kind of God we have. He doesn't let the building burn, but he himself runs into it to save and to care. And he calls us into it himself. That Jesus embodies God's purposes for the world. And when he shows up, he doesn't say, I'm holy, worship me. He comes to make all things new. Through his ministry, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. That this is God's purposes for the world. And Jesus takes those purposes and he puts them onto a community. 
unto you, unto his people. And he says, I want you to follow me in this. I want, to, I want you to work these things out for the rest of the world. What begins in Israel is fulfilled in Jesus, and he gives that to you. And so to be a Christian is to be a human being who follows God in his glory wherever that takes you. In your job, in your friendships, in the brokenness of your family. Look, so many of y'all are deeply, deeply uncertain about your future. Like, you're terrified of it. You think about it all the time. Sometimes with hope, a lot of times not. Or with fear. You just have so much uncertainty about where you're going to be, who you're going to be with, what you're going to do. Part of why you freak out about exams and applications is because you think this is my sure ticket to the future that I want. And if it blows up, then, you know, I don't know what I've got. But think about this. That to dwell with God is to dwell with the certainty that God is with you now and in the future. That God will be with you in the places you are most afraid to go. He'll be with you on the day you graduate from Carolina. He'll be with you on the day you move out of Chapel Hill. He'll be with you if you get married and if you never get married. He will be with you as you grow old. That God is with your people. And that he calls you to follow him in that. Well, Simon, how can I be certain of that? How do you know what my future holds? How do you know? One of the very... (laughs) A rhetorical question. One of the very first lines of John's gospel usually gets translated like this. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, which sounds very natural the way that we talk. What John literally says there is the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. That Jesus put on flesh and he lived in a tent with his people. That Jesus is holy and absolutely holy with sinners, eating with them, drinking with them, living outdoors with them. He's a friend of sinners and yet he's sinless. He's with his people and gives them exactly what they need. And this shows up all the time in the Gospels. Think about this. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are good friends of Jesus. Lazarus dies and what does Jesus do? He goes to the tomb and he weeps and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. Why? Because God is with his people. Peter is a guy that is convinced that he knows what it is to follow Jesus. That nothing is going to sway him from following Jesus until what happens? Until it really starts to cost him. And then he totally chickens out. And acts like he never knew the man. And then Jesus comes to him afterwards and restores him. Because God is with his people. Mary and Martha and Lazarus thought that what they needed was a cure. What they really needed was Jesus to be with them. Peter thought that what he needed was more discipline. What he really needed was Jesus to be with his people. What you think you need for your future is certainty and a life that will turn out like you think that it's going to turn out now, which is not going to happen. But a life without ugliness or struggle or failure. What you and I need is to know that God is with his people. That God is with you and dwells with you. That that is one of the chief desires of his heart. That that's what the whole of the book of Exodus is about. That's what the whole of the rest of the Bible is about. Is that God will be with his people. And so I want to end with this. I saw a documentary on Netflix not long ago. um, And 
in it, one of the feature people in it was this Swedish architect named Bjark Ingels. I think I'm saying his name right. He's this, you should look him up. He's this very innovative architect. He makes these super sustainable apartment buildings with like rooftop gardens out of like shipping containers. And it's very hip. It's very cool. He designed Google's headquarters. He uh, designed the World Trade Center after they put it back up after 9-11. He's known for making these insanely beautiful, insanely livable, sort of futuristic buildings. He took a, took a power plant in Copenhagen and he put a ski slope on top of it. And when I heard about that, I thought, that is so stupid. That's like what a, a child would do that. And then they showed in the documentary, and I was like, I want to go to Copenhagen. This is amazing. It's incredible. And in the documentary, he, has this, he says this line. He says, everyone wants to live in a utopia, like this perfect future place, but no one knows where to start. It's easy. You start by creating it one block at a time. Exodus would say, you want the surefire recipe for a perfect future. Start with the fact that God dwells with his people and dwell with him and follow him with wherever he goes and do that one day at a time, one friendship at a time, one block at a time, that God calls you to abide with him and to follow him. And wherever you go in life, that will be enough. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for your word and the way that it's true and it's good and it shows us that you really do abide with your people. Lord, help us to abide with you, to follow you, to know you and your power and your presence, to know you as you deal with our sin and our fears and our shame, to know with you, to know you and dwell with you as we walk with you into an uncertain future, and to know that you are a God who holds our hand who keeps us from slipping and following, and who will lead us into glory with yourself. Help us to persevere in that, to rest our hearts in that, and to follow you in it. In your name we pray. Amen.